Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. And so I'd like to just start by asking you to state your full name for the record, spelling your first and last name. My name is uh, Jayanta Bhattacharya, J-A-Y-A-N-T-A uh, Bhattacharya, B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. And Dr. Bhattacharya, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. And now my understanding, and I think a lot of people are familiar with you, and I'll, I'll tell you, you sent us a rather impressive uh, CV that we've entered as Exhibit WY8B, but my understanding is, is that you are currently a professor at Stanford University Medical School. I am. And you're also a physician. Yes, I have an MD. Yeah, and you're an epidemiologist? I, I publish and teach epidemiology and, uh, uh, through for decades. And then you're a, a health economist? Yes, my, my PhD is in, health, is in economics. And you are a public health policy expert focusing on infectious diseases and vulnerable populations? Yes. And you are one of uh, the three authors of the Great Barrington Declaration? Yes. Now, we've invited you here today to uh, speak about several issues. Um, and one of them is, is you have participated in doing an expert report uh, concerning a, a lawsuit in the province of Alberta. Can you share with us um, why you did that and a little bit about that? Yes. Well, it, it, uh, it stems from the, the ideas in the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, the, 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 the primary goal that I had in participating in that lawsuit, uh, which was a lawsuit aimed at uh, changing the Alberta policy of lockdowns uh, away from lockdowns toward a more focused protection policy, um, the, 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 it exactly was what we wrote in the Great Barrington Declaration. And the, Great, the ideas of the Great Barrington Declaration are based on two incontrovertible scientific facts. The first is that there's a very steep age gradient in the mortality risk from COVID infection. It's older people who die at a thousand times or more higher rates uh, on infection than young people. Uh, for, for children, it's, it's uh, especially healthy children, the risk of dying from COVID is vanishingly small. Um, whereas for older people, it's much, much higher. Uh, the, that's incontrovertible. Uh, and, and I think universally acknowledged. The second in, a fact, again, incontrovertible, and I think universally acknowledged, is that the lockdown policies that we, we have followed and Canada has followed has caused tremendous harm, especially to the lives of young people. And I mean, I, I don't just mean economic harm. I mean, health harms, uh, psychological harms, uh, a whole host of harms that, that will play themselves out over a long period of time and have already caused uh, major health problems for the Canadian people. Um, so uh, the right strategy, the Great Branch Declaration, what it says is let's uh, use our resources to protect vulnerable older people from the disease while at the same time lifting lockdowns which have caused so much harm to the lives of young people. Um, it's the standard pandemic strategy that we followed for a century of respiratory virus pandemics before this one. Um, which, and, and, and they, and it worked. Um, so it was, so that was the, my, my main motivation for participating as an expert in that, uh, in that Alberta case was to provide the scientific documentation for that, that strategy. So, and I'll just ask, being that you, you started talking about those two things, can you elaborate more on, you know, you're saying the lockdowns, especially for the younger, 
um, were very detrimental on several levels, physical, psychological, social isolation. Can you just elaborate a, a little more on that so that um, the commissioners and then the, the people listening understand exactly what you're referring to? Yeah, so um, I, can, I, I, I brought some statistics just to give some sense of it, but it's not possible to do it full, full justice because the, the extent of the harms caused by the lockdowns on population health are so extensive. Um, just to give, uh, again, just to give a, a, a smattering of, of the, the flavor of this, um, during the, the uh, 2020 and 2021, um, when, when the lockdowns were, in, were sort of primarily in force, um, a lot of the emphasis was on uh, making sure hospital systems and healthcare systems were not overwhelmed. One way that this happened was by essentially causing people to fear to come into hospital systems uh, or, or being told explicitly not to come into to, to healthcare systems to for the conduct of basic preventive care. So, for instance, many people skipped cancer screening that, that's recommended, colon cancer screening, uh, cervical cancer screening, uh, a whole host of other recommended cancer screenings, um, and as a, as a breast cancer screenings. As a result, many men and women will show up now with late, later stage breast cancer or prostate cancer or, or whatnot that should have been caught at an earlier stage, and they will die from it when they would have survived it had it been uh, detected earlier. Uh, another major harm from another major health harm from the sort of lockdown policies have to do with mental health. Uh, there are reports uh, in, out of uh, in, from Canada from from 2021, even even as early as 2020, suggesting that the psychological uh, distress caused by, in, in, uh, by by lockdown policies, the isolation from others, the disruption of normal uh, rhythms of normal daily life. Uh, led a, a, a tremendous number of Canadians, especially young young Canadians, to uh, to overdose in with with drugs. The the, the rate of, of excess death among the young from drug overdoses in Canada increased sharply, even as early as 2020, according to a Statistics Canada report from, that was issued in 2021. Um, the CBC reported. Uh, that one in five Canadians need mental health services. Uh, the demand for mental health services in Canada climbed sub substantially, even as wait times for specialists uh, got longer and longer. So at the moment when Canadians needed the most uh, 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 help from, from medical health professionals, it was the least available because of the lockdowns. Um, the, the consequences, like I said, the consequences are hard to, like, uh, is summarized in a very very simple way because the health health effects of uh, the of investments in, in in health by healthcare systems is so important and so 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 pervasive in life um, and and ending those or stopping those or pausing those even for short periods of time can have long term consequences on the health of, of populations. Um, one measure of this, uh, if it's possible for me to share the screen, I'd like oh, to share one, one abs slide. Absolutely, you can share share the screen. It should be set up for you to be able to do that. Oh, perfect. Um, so one, I'm just going to share one slide. Um, so one, one sort of summary measure of of this is is the cumulative all uh, age adjusted all cause mortality rate in Canada. And I wanted to do a comparison to a comparison country, Sweden, which followed much more, much close, much closer to a, a focused protection approach than Canada did. 
much more much more aligned with the Great Barrington Declaration we discussed earlier. Uh, the way that cumulative all-cause excess age-adjusted excess mortality is is calculated is you look at baseline um, mortality rates. Uh, in this case, I think from 2015 to 2019, in each country, uh, uh, adjusted for age, so that the, you're not you're comparing like with like. So you don't you're not older populations, of course, are likely to die at higher rates, um, and and then. Uh, track over time uh, at the, from the beginning of the pandemic here on the left side of the graph is 2020 is February 2020 all the way to now uh, how much above that baseline expected expected mortality rate you actually see um, the red line here is Canada and the blue line here is Sweden all cause excess deaths age adjusted mortality rates uh, so the the way the the the, the blue line the Canadian all-cause excess deaths sometime around May 2021 uh, crossed the the the, uh, the 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 blue line, um, Sweden's all-cause excess mortality rate, and uh, what you see is that the rate of death, the cumulative all-cause excess death in Canada, as of the late 2022, was actually about 50 percent higher than that experienced by Sweden, which did not impose the kind of draconian lockdown policies that Canada followed during the pandemic. Almost a, it's like almost a 50% higher all-cause excess death rates. Now, a lot, most of that, I think, or much of that is not actually due to, to COVID, uh, because the COVID rates in Canada were actually relatively, relatively well controlled. Most of that is due to lockdown harms, I think. Um, whereas Sweden, uh, which didn't impose lockdowns, um, had much more voluntary policies and a, and, a, and a greater emphasis on focused protection of vulnerable elder people rather than trying to uh, 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 protect hospital systems, had much lower all-cause excess deaths because they uh, invested in the health of the population, the normal the normal uh, investments in the health of preventive care and so on, the health of the population, didn't panic the population. Um, and as you can see, the results... Over time, it's gotten worse and worse for Canada and, and, and better and better for Sweden. Now, I think in Canada, we all recall actually the mainstream media criticizing Sweden at the time for the role that they were taking. I imagine that you saw similar reports in the United States media. I did. I saw uh, the, in the United States media that the, the, um, the Swedish strategy was characterized as, as reckless. As, uh, as just letting the virus rip. Right, but now with hindsight, uh, we can see that uh, it wasn't reckless in any way. No, it was not. So as, a, as I understand this focus protection, so basically this premise of the Great Barrington Declaration is, is, is once we knew that it was affecting the older populations, so we focused the resources there, um, but not do things like lockdown, um, you know, younger people. Now, in Canada, our media and definitely children were being taught that um, they basically should be doing their part to protect old people. And I'm wondering if you can comment on um, basically the risk of children spreading the disease and whether or not it was proper to be locking down children. Absolutely. So um, first, from very early in the pandemic, it was clear from the scientific evidence that uh, children were not super spreaders. Children, of course, can get the disease, and of course, can spread the disease. That's not—they're 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 uh, uh, not—they're not like perfect uh, 
uh, sinks in, in that sense. However, um, the risk of, of children spreading the disease is, is in some ways in me measured rates are lower than adults. Uh, let me give you two pieces of scientific advice that were available from very early on in the pandemic. Um, in Iceland, there was a study done in, in March 2020 uh, where the, the, the scientific group sampled, I think, 12% of the Icelandic population and did a, a, a test to see if they, uh, the, 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 the patients that they sampled had active cases of COVID, including um, sampling the, the, uh, the, the standard PCR test to measure whether the virus is present, and then a, a non-standard sequencing test to look at the virus and see what mutations the virus had. They paired this with a very, very detailed contact tracing uh, approach to see who the people that had had, were positive had come in contact with. Uh, and from this kind of approach, you can distinguish uh, whether somebody, uh, like the two people come into contact with each other, contact tracing normally can't tell who passed the virus to who, uh, because you just know that these two people were in near, near, near each other. Um, but, or, and they may have been, of course, near other people. But with the sequencing analysis, you can say, okay, well, the two people that are in contact with each other, they share, the, the, the viruses share the mutation patterns. So, so they, they may have passed the virus to each other, whereas people who don't, who have very, very different disparate mutation patterns of the virus that they have may not, uh, are not, are unlikely to have passed the virus to each other. The striking finding from this Icelandic study was that while there were many, many instances of parents passing the virus on to children, there was not a single instance in the study of a child passing the disease on to their parents. Um, the children were not super spreaders. Now, as I said, people, kids can spread the disease, especially uh, older kids. Uh, the younger kids, I think, are less likely. Um, uh, so let me talk, talk about a second study, this time out of Sweden. Sweden, even in spring of 2020, did not close its uh, uh, primary and, and early secondary schools. And every, every child under the age of 16, I think, experienced no disruption in their schooling at all because those schools were not closed in Sweden. A study was conducted by Swedish researchers looking at the uh, mortality rate uh, of, of ch uh, teachers in those schools relative to COVID mortality rates uh, of, of other workers in the population. And what it found was that teachers actually had a lower risk of COVID mortality than the average risk faced by other workers in the Swedish population during that period. Uh, it, it, in a sense, working in schools protected teachers against COVID relative to the, the, to the rest of the population, at least empirically based on that. Based on these findings, it was really clear early on that closing schools was a tremendous mistake, that it was unnecessary to protect older people in this way. Uh, alternate policies would have been better to protect older people and would not have caused the harm to children. Uh, if I may, may I, may I talk a little bit about what the harms to children actually oh, are? Oh, actually, please do. Um, so if, if you go back in the social science literature uh, decades, what you find is a very, very, a very common theme about how important investments in children are in, in terms of schooling. And it's, it's not just that our schools provide uh, 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 you know, education, in, which is important for, for future job prospects and so on. That's, that's true. They do. But in fact, they are absolutely crucial to the health of children. Uh, in an immediate sense, uh, schools are where many children receive uh, much of the nutrition for the day. 
Uh, if you close schools, you reduce the amount of nutrition um, available to children. And of course, Ontario, I know, closed schools for, for a time. Um, the, uh, the other thing is that, again, schools are places where social services are provided. Uh, child abuse is often picked up at schools because it's teachers who see the results of child abuse and then report it to authorities. When you close schools, child abuse continues to happen, but you, you won't you won't pick it up because there's the the uh, the outside uh, uh, outside people who care about you, uh, children aren't aren't there to look. Um, so both of those things happen during the pandemic in places that close schools. Uh, worse nutrition for children, children skipping meals as a result, and also uh, child abuse not being picked up and reported. Uh, the long run effects are even worse of closing schools. Uh, the key thing is that when you have uh, children miss school for even relatively short periods of times in their lives, according to the social science literature, it has long-term negative health consequences. Children who, who, uh, who miss school for even, again, in the social science literature for short periods of time uh, end up having shorter, less healthy lives because they lead poorer lives. One estimate published in the pediatrics literature early in the pandemic in the United States found that just the American school closures in spring 2020 cost American school kids nearly five and a half million life years in expectation over their, over their lifetimes. Um, so the, the consequences are not trivial. Uh, you're essentially taking life years away from children, exposing them to, uh, to abuse that, that, need, should, that needed to get corrected. Schools are absolutely vital and closing them was a tremendous mistake that harmed children. Um, if, now, if I may, can I talk a little bit about what alternate, like what focus protection, the, the failure of focus protection in Canada? And I, I just wanted to bring up a couple of data points. Uh, yes, from please one, do. One from very early in the pandemic. Um, in, in the, uh, a, a, a public health policy that's focused, that, that recognized the unique risk that, that the COVID posed to older people would have moved heaven and earth to protect the lives of older people. To, to, uh, to, to, especially early in the pandemic where we didn't have very good treatments or, or vaccines or whatnot. Um, the key idea was to, to find where the vulnerable older people live and devote resources to protecting them. Instead, what happened in Canada, and not just unique to Canada, but happened elsewhere as well, is that uh, Places like care homes and nursing homes, where the most vulnerable elder people, uh, older people lived, became places where, uh, where, where essentially of neglect and abuse, um, and, and in fact became places where COVID, COVID was spread. So in, in Montreal, for instance, in the early days of the pandemic, there are reports, again in the Canadian press, that the, the staff of, nurse, of nursing homes in Montreal uh, and, 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 and uh, abandoned their post in part because they were so afraid of getting COVID and left uh, 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 older patients with dementia to die from dehydration and neglect. You have uh, uh, in, in many places, uh, in the United States, for instance, in New York and Michigan and in Pennsylvania, you had uh, governors sending COVID-infected patients to from uh, out of hospitals early into nursing homes, where then the disease then spread rapidly, infecting the most uh, the most vulnerable people. 
the reason why this happened, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think a, a criminal act. I think it was actually a act as a result of ignorance about who the most vulnerable, the, the, who, the, like what to do about the most vulnerable people. Instead of making protection of vulnerable people the central goal, focus protection, the central goal of, 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 of pandemic policy, instead the goal was to empty hospital systems, keep hospital systems uh, not overwhelmed. In a sense, it invert, we inverted the normal role, uh, uh, relationship between the public and medicine. Normally, you would think about people in medicine, public health, serving the public. But the rhetoric and the reality flipped that, where the idea was that the public would serve healthcare systems. We made the, the uh, we recruited the public as as a as a uh, as a way to protect hospital systems, healthcare systems, rather than hospital systems and healthcare systems serving the public. And one consequence of that was that we forgot about focus protection and sent COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes, killing. Uh, 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 many people who would otherwise be potentially uh, have survived much longer as a result if, the, if that had not happened. Um, so, what you have, and, and uh, let me give you one other, one last data point from from uh, from the Canadian experience that I know of. Um, in Ontario, there, in in the district of Halamand, Norfolk, there was a uh, 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 there was a there was a, a health uh, minister uh, named Ma uh, Dr. Matthew Strauss. Who, who explicitly uh, uh, adopted the idea of focus protection, did not impose mask mandates, did not uh, prioritize when the vaccine became available, prioritized high-risk individuals for the vaccines, uh, put out uh, 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 centers for the infusion of monoclonal antibodies and effective treatment for, some, uh, for, for much of the pandemic, um, that made available uh, antivirals rapidly when, as soon as they became available. And as a result of his approach, which eschewed mandates, did not adopt, uh, adopt uh, any of the, the sort of restricted restrictions that were imposed by in much of the rest of Ontario. As a result, the age-adjusted mortality from COVID uh, in, in Halliman, Norfolk, uh, Halliman, Norfolk, was actually 30% lower than the rest of the province. Um, focus protection works. Focus protection would have worked better in Canada than the, 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 than the lockdown focus policy, and it would not have, 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 have harmed the children in the way that, that they were harmed as a result of the, the lockdown policies that were followed. Now, you've spoken about um, you know, restrictions on children. Can you also comment on young adults? Yes. Yeah, so, um, the the it it not there's not I, there's there's a, there hasn't been as much attention paid to this, but I think it's quite important. Um, the 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 uh, experience of young adults in society is tremendously important for the rest of their lives. Uh, in the two thousand eight recession, for instance, the uh, the the joblessness in, among young adults resulted in long-term decreases in life opportunities for those, those same young adults, uh, and including um, the re reductions in, in, in worsening health, like the kind of unemployment induced by lockdowns, which happened in Canada for, for years, um, has especially bad long-term consequences for, for young adults. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the importance of young adults to socialize with one another is critically important for their, for their mental health. And there's evidence that 
uh, as a consequence of lockdowns and the isolation of lockdowns, uh, th those kinds of mental health problems that I mentioned earlier, you know, one in five Canadians needing professional help, um, th 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 those were, enti were exacerbated by the lockdowns, particularly among young adults. Uh, the same thing I think is true for, to explain the, the rise in overdoses in, in, uh, you know, of, of, of illicit drugs in Canada. Uh, it's primarily young adults that, uh, that face that. And it's, it's, again, it's not a surprise given the mental health consequences of, of isolation and anxiety caused by the lockdown policy that Canada followed. Another thing I wanted to ask you um, before we move on to the topic, because I, I want to cover the topic of censorship with you and some of your experiences there. Um, but in Canada, basically the federal government and every single province was very aggressive on taking measures to, um, I, I'll use the word encourage, but really it was coercion to be vaccinated. And there was um, basically zero allowance for natural immunity. And I'm wondering if you can comment on the policy of, of basically mandating vaccines and ignoring uh, natural immunity and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I think a, a couple of things about the science of the vaccines is really important to understand. If you wanted if you, to, to, to understand whether what, what the, like the, 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 why those vaccine mandates were, were both unnecessary and a bad idea. Um, so first of all, as I've already mentioned, there is a, a, a very sharp gradient in the mortality risk from COVID. Now, the vaccines, um, when the, the, vac the, the randomized trials of the vaccines were conducted in 2020, what those randomized trials showed was that uh, for, uh, against a placebo group, a group that didn't receive a placebo rather than the vaccine, um, the vaccines protected people uh, against symptomatic infection for about two months after the vaccination. That was how long the trials lasted before they, before they ended. The, the median person uh, was, was followed for about two months. So you have 95% protection for two months against symptomatic infection. That sounds impressive and it is impressive. Um, the question then is, uh, but, but, the, but, but it's actually not the key epidemiological endpoint that you care about for a policy perspective. But from a policy perspective, there's two potential epidemiological endpoints you might care about separate from prevention of symptomatic infection. First, it is protection against severe disease. Uh, does the vaccine stop you from dying if you get infected? The trial did not answer that question because it didn't have that as a primary endpoint and it didn't have sufficient numbers of people enrolled to be able to answer that question with any statistical confidence. So I just, other, want to, I just want to make sure that, that we understand what you're saying. So, you're, you're, so let's use the Pfizer trial as an example. You're basically saying they weren't actually measuring as an out, as a endpoint whether or not it would reduce serious illness. Yes, but they didn't have that as a primary statistical endpoint. Uh, and if, if they would have needed to design the trial differently to have that as a primary statistical endpoint, they would have needed either many, many, many more people than the 40-some thousand, whatever, they, they, they enrolled, or they would have needed to primarily have conducted the trial in a, a high-risk population like the elderly. Both would have been uh, defensible. Of course, the first would have been much harder. Uh, instead, they had prevention of symptomatic infection. See, because of course, I, and I, and I'm just sorry, but I think this is important to Canadians because we endured um, some pretty draconian lockdowns 
um, some very significant uh, messaging that to this day we are totally divided and basically it was to prevent us from getting seriously ill you know including dying that 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 really would have been why people were participating in this and you're telling us they weren't even measuring for those things as an outcome yeah they didn't have that they didn't they didn't power the trial to uh, to measure that as a, as a primary primary outcome and can I also just ask you, you use this 95% figure but my understanding is is that that wouldn't be an absolute risk figure that would be just a relative risk figure that was used yeah so not 95% relative risk reduction um, uh, you know I, that's actually pretty standard in vaccine trials uh, so I'm not I'm not terribly exercised by that the, the absolute redu risk reduction has to do with uh, more than just the trial itself, but like, so for instance, if the, if the, if the virus is not spreading in a population, a very highly efficacious vaccine, uh, will, will produce zero absolute, uh, risk reduction because there's, you know, just no risk in the population of getting the, 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 the virus. So it's, it's, the absolute risk reduction is both a function of the, uh, vaccine itself and also whether the virus is spreading when the measurement takes place. Right, okay. Oh. And then you were going to talk about natural immunity, but I didn't want to cut you short on the vaccine, so... No, no, yeah. So, well, I mean, I think that I wanted to get to natural immunity. I just wanted to tell the story about the vaccines because it's, it's related, it's very closely related to the, vac the vaccine mandates um, and the, the need or the, the lack of necessity for them. So the other, so I, I mentioned that it's symptomatic infection prevention, not, it didn't check for whether you, it prevented all, all uh, 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 it did, or um, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't, the, the, the trial was not statistically powered to test whether it, uh, uh, prevention of COVID, uh, de death from COVID. Um, the, the, on the other hand, you also could have used the trial to check whether the, the vaccine prevents you from getting any infection. Any infection, of, of course, is distinct from symptomatic infection because you can get a non-symptomatic infection, asymptomatic infection. Um, you could also check to see if the vaccine protects against transmission of the disease. If I have the vaccine, even maybe maybe it protects. It, although I may get sick, I still might uh, it might reduce the risk of my spreading the disease to others. The trials did not check for either of those endpoints. So what we knew was two months of Prevention of symptomatic prevention of symptomatic disease, and that's it. Now, um, the other thing about the trial that's important is that the 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 the, the trial explicitly excluded from its uh, efficacy calculations patients who had already previously had COVID and recovered. It, there are subgroups in that that subgroup of the trial actually turned out to have uh, almost no cases of COVID at all after they recovered. And so they wouldn't have been able to find much effect of the vaccine in that group. And if you read this, the supplementary appendices in the vaccine trials, what you'll see is that the, those groups, while they were recruited um, for, in order to check the safety of the vaccine, were actually excluded from the efficacy calculations in the, in the randomized trials that were published in, in 2020. Hmm. Um, the, the reason is simple. There's a tremendous amount of evidence, uh, again, from 2020 on, that the uh, patients who get COVID and recover have very substantial protection against both subsequent infection and also uh, severe disease on reinfection. Um, uh, now, um, a new variant, uh, what, what we've learned is a new variant 
can escape that immunity so that you, if you'd had COVID in the first wave in 2020, something you may get it again, uh, may have gotten it again in 2021 in, during, during, the, during the time of a new variant. But the protection against severe disease is long lasting. So if you got COVID and recovered the first time, it's very likely that the second time you get it, uh, maybe with a new variant, will be much, will be milder, less, at least less likely to produce severe disease and death than the first time you've got it. And so you're, you're referring to what we would call natural immunity. Yeah, so I mean, I like to say recovered immunity, just to distinct, sometimes people say natural immunity and they, they, what they mean is that even before you're exposed, you, you have some, some uh, like substantial protection. I mean, you do, but it's not the same kind of protection as you, you get after you've had COVID recovered. That okay. immunity is, 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 is durable. It's, and, it's, and it's very effective against reducing the risk of severe disease and death so, on reinfection. So using your term recovered immunity, um, can you give us a, a comparison then? So you're saying that that's robust vis-a-vis you know, significant disease coming forward. How would that compare with the protection offered by the COVID-19 vaccines? So going forward, are they providing a, a similar robust protection? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's some scientific uh, uh, discussion and debate about exactly it, but the, the, I think the general consensus is that the the uh, the amount of immunity provided in terms of reinfection risk is better if you've had recovered immunity than uh, an immune naive person who just has the vaccine, and uh, the protection against severe disease and death I think is a, is a, is a, at least as good as the vac- uh, again as someone who's immune naive and has the vaccine. Um, just to give one data point again on this, uh, there was a study out of Bergamo, Italy uh, in 2021 that was published that looked at uh, patients who had had COVID in the first wave during that big wave in Italy uh, in 2020 and tracked them for a year. And only 0.3% of that group was reinfected during that whole entire year after that, 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 that initial infection. Um, that's better protection against infection than the vaccines which in studies like uh, careful epidemiological studies done in places like Qatar and, and Sweden and elsewhere uh, found that after two or three months, the efficacy against infection, uh, uh, even symptomatic infection, drops pretty substantially with the, uh, d- down to um, you know, 20%, sometimes near 0%, that maybe just three or four or five, six months after you've had the vaccine. Um, it's very, very common that, then uh, to have had the vaccine and then gotten infected just a few months after you had it. That actually happened to me. I was vaccinated in April of 2021 using the Pfizer vaccine, and then four months later in August of 2021, I got COVID. So now from a public um, policy perspective for you know trying to get the best health outcomes, um, would you agree then that it would have been prudent to take into account natural or recovered immunity um, and permit people to opt out of of a vaccine mandate? Yes. Um, so, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, so, first of all, um, the the uh, let me just before I answer that directly, if you don't mind, let me let me talk a little bit about why that va- the, the the these scientific facts we just talked about means that 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 the necessary conditions that you you would want. For a vaccine mandate are not in, not actually there. Uh, now, if uh, if l- l- the I, I believe that the vaccine does reduce the risk of all cause mor- all cause mortality. Uh, it wasn't in the trial, but there are 
there are um, a number of, I think, high-quality epidemiological studies um, done by uh, uh, done by people who were not affiliated with with any of the drug companies, um, high-quality, uh, you know, high, uh, with, you know, very skilled epidemiologists using careful cohort approaches um, that demonstrate that the vaccine does reduce all uh, mortality risk from COVID. I think for up to six or seven months after you've had it. Um, so, uh, let's, so let's take that as given. The right use then for the vaccine is in the population uh, re to recommend it very strongly in the population that faces the highest risk from COVID, the elderly. You, you, the vaccine should have been used for focused protection of the elderly. Right? That's essentially what the, what Dr. Strauss did, for instance, in, in Hallam and Norfolk. Um, uh, the, the, it's, it's very important then um, from a personal health point of view that high-risk individuals get vaccinated. On the other hand, for low-risk individuals, uh, from a personal health point of view, it's much less important that they get vaccinated because the, the absolute risk reduction for them, that is, you know, for instance, for younger people, is small. The, that means the relative, be the expected benefit from the vaccine for a low-risk person is low, just by just by uh, uh, just by the basic math of it, right? If you have, if you face a zero risk of dying from COVID, the vaccine produces zero benefit because you you can't go below zero. Um, so, uh, and on the other hand, the vaccine is not without side effects. We've learned, for instance, uh, that the vaccine, um, especially in young men, produces myocarditis, which is the inflammation of the heart muscle. It's a, a very, it can be a very serious condition resulting in death. At, at, I think at, at unacceptably high rates, given the small benefit of the vaccine in young men, especially from the second dose or the boosters. Um, and so from a private health perspective, private meaning from an individual patient's perspective, it, the, whether the vaccine is a wise thing will depend on how old you are, your health condition, a whole host of other things. It's things that you w normally would expect to be able to talk to your doctor about and decide for yourself whether the, I, the vaccine is right for you. Um, on the other hand, from a public health perspective, if a vaccine does not stop transmission of the disease or only has a very limited effect on the transmission of the disease for a short period of time, well, uh, the idea that, that you need to vaccinate other people so that I'm protected is just false. Not normally, with other vaccines, like the measles vaccine that does tra stop transmission, th th that, that idea isn't, isn't false. The protection provided by the measles vaccine um, is uh, against transmission means that when I'm around patients who, or people who've had the measles vaccine, I'm very unlikely to get measles because the, those people are not, uh, are not susceptible to getting measles. Uh, that, that's essentially a kind of herd immunity provided by vaccines. By the way, natural uh, recovered immunity can provide a very similar kind of effect. But this vaccine, this COVID vaccine, does not stop transmission. And in fact, in those same careful uh, uh, epidemiological studies that I just mentioned where I, they found reductions in the risk of mortality after the vaccine, they find that the protection against infection is very short-lived. And what that means then is that um, there's no, there's no, the, 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 the public benefit, public meaning my vaccination protects you, is very, very limited from this vaccine. But that public benefit is a necessary condition, I think, for imposing a mandate. 
because the idea of the mandate is that while there are people that are, are, are not getting the vaccine, endangering the public by, doing, by not doing so, well, that's just not true for this vaccine. Uh, so if you, if you are lacking in that necessary condition for the vaccine, uh, vaccine mandate, it's, it's not wise public policy to impose it. It's because it doesn't actually end up protecting the public and the public thinks they are protected. Uh, but I think there's even broader or even, even deeper reasons why I think the vaccine mandates were such an unwise idea. Um, first, I think it created this uh, almost like uh, uh, this, this, this sort of like a, this idea that, that, uh, that there was an unclean group of people walking around. Um, it, it demonized people who, for whatever reason, chose against getting the, the vaccine. It, it essentially gave open season to discriminate against them. People lost their jobs. Um, in Canada, unlike most Western countries, I think even in most, in most of the, most of the rest of the world, unvaccinated individuals were not allowed to travel internally for, for years. Uh, that's a gross violation of human rights. Um, and it, and it essentially demonized people who don't, who for, again, for whatever medical reason, uh, or whatever reason chose not to get the vaccine. Um, uh, I mean, for them who chose not to get the vaccine, it, it was, should always have remained a private medical decision given the epidemiological facts I've said. It should never have been, become an issue of public health um, uh, in the sense of like forcing them to get the vaccine. It was, uh, um, so it, 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 it essentially created social divisions that were absolutely unnecessary for, for, uh, that for uh, public health to, to, to induce. And then actually the second knock-on effect of that is I think it undermined trust in public health and in vaccines more generally among a substantial fraction of the population. The, 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 the vaccine skeptics movement that I've, uh, it, it, that I've seen throughout my career has always been a relatively small group of people. Uh, what I've seen now in Canada and in, in, in the United States and elsewhere is that that group has grown very, very sharply. Um, and they question not simply the COVID vaccine, but the the um, but other vaccines as well, um, and, and public health more generally. A, a lot of the a lot of the protests, for instance, that the truckers truckers movement was induced by the, the civil rights violations on the back of these vaccine uh, va the, these, these vaccine mandates that were put in place in Canada, um, and the the, the, the vaccine related movement restrictions are put in place in Canada. Um, uh, at, at the same thing, by the way, has happened in the United States, although it didn't have movement restrictions of the same kind. It had vaccine passports. We had vaccine passports, vaccine mandates that have induced uh, a very similar kind of uh, entirely predictable reaction by people who are made, were upset by this policy, um, this absolutely unnecessary policy from an epidemiological point of view. Uh, and, and we're going to be facing that, those problems for years and years. Now, I'd, I'd asked you generally about, you know, public health policy with <clears throat> the vaccines and, you know, taking into account recovered immunity. And I'm just wondering if I could focus you a little more than specifically with children, because you were suggesting, I think you were suggesting that, you know, the, the risk that children would face for, you know, serious illness or death from COVID is is zero or, or for all intensive purposes non-existent. So from the individual perspective, the parents making a decision, should I be vaccinating, not vaccinating, it, clearly you'd, you'd say, well, why, why would I do this? But you had spoken earlier, um, and I think this goes to the you know public health thing about protecting others, that 
children were also such a low risk for spreading the virus. So can you comment on those two things and then your thoughts on, well, from a public health policy? Because we're still pushing to vaccinate children quite aggressively in Canada. And so we'd appreciate your comments today on, on our current policy. So I, 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 I tend to have a philosophy that, uh, that, that you should um, make those kinds of decisions in careful consultation with, uh, with a physician to decide whether your child should or should not have some, any, any particular medical treatment. The parents should be involved, uh, physicians should be involved um, in, in that. Um, I, I think that the risk of mortality for a healthy child, while not zero from COVID, is very, 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 very low. And so that means the benefit from the vaccine in terms of preventing those severe outcomes, again, is also very, 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 very low for the vast majority of children. Th that is not to say that there may, be, there may be some small numbers of children who have particular medical conditions that, that, uh, that make the risk of dying from COVID or other respiratory infections higher, and maybe they may benefit, they might benefit from the vaccine relative to the risk they face from taking the vaccine. Um, so I think this should be a, a decision that should be made without pressure by parents consulting carefully with children, uh, with, with, with uh, uh, consulting about their children with, uh, with, with, with their physicians. Um, the role of public health then is to tell, is to reassure parents that while most parents that most of the children don't face a very low risk from COVID and that it's important for the lives and the health of children for to, to, to you know, sort of to have their regular lives go again. Um, that, that there may be, if their, if their child has, you know, uh, is immunocompromised or some has some other particular medical conditions to go seek advice from their doctor. I mean, that's the kind of reassuring advice I would have expected professional health, public health people to make uh, regarding children. Um, that the idea that uh, that there should be universal vaccination of COVID by ch uh, for children, I don't think uh, is uh, in aligned with basic evidence-based medicine practices. Um, in in, in evidence-based medicine, when you have an uncertainty, for instance, we don't know the full extent of the side effects of the vaccine um, when given to children. What we do know, for instance, is young men have higher rates of myocarditis, but, um, and the benefit is low generally the advice is that you would you would uh, you know err on the side of caution and not give uh, not give that that uh, that that therapy um, I think that's likely the case for the vast majority of children that it's not it's not actually wise to get it um, but there may be children for whom it is wise and I think that that's the that's the the, the key thing is there is like you need to have um, those decisions made in careful consultation between parents and doctors. Now, um, Dr. Berdichera, I want to switch gears just briefly and then I want to allow time for the commissioners to ask you questions, but uh, I want to switch to kind of the area of censorship because for one reason or another, you um, have been kind of placed in the forefront. Um, I want you to, you know, first of all, speak about uh, what happened with the Canadian media when you came out as one of the three founding uh, authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. So uh, almost immediately after we published the Great Barrington Declaration, just a short, uh, I think less than a week or so after, um, the CBC held a roundtable with uh, two or three scientists who, who really didn't like the declaration. But I don't think they understood the declaration. Um, the CBC essentially allowed them to say on the air, uh, on, on, paid for by the Canadian taxpayers, 
that the that the, the Great Barrington Declaration was calling for letting the virus rip, essentially letting everyone get infected. And in fact, the, the Great Barrington Declaration, as I've said, was the opposite of that. It was a strategy of focused protection of vulnerable older people. The idea wasn't to let the virus rip. The idea was to let young people live, live their normal lives. Um, it's very clear that when there was a threat to older people, um, it, the, the, the people in their private lives would undertake voluntary uh, actions to try to, when the disease is spreading rapidly or you know, at, at, at a high rates in the population, people would take voluntary action to try to uh, reduce the reduce the, the risk faced by by, old, by older people. Um, and the and Great Branch of that question is entirely consistent with that. Uh, it was also consistent with um, uh, devoting resources and ingenuity to protecting older people who had who faced a high risk. So, for instance, deploying monoclonal antibodies in October 2020, those had just become available. Rapidly deploying them at scale would have uh, so that older people, if they got sick, would have access to them. Uh, that would have been a, a very wise thing to do. Again, con entirely consistent with the Great Branch Directive. The idea wasn't to let the virus strip. The idea was focused protection of vulnerable older people. In a sense, the CDC impaneled a group of scientists who slandered us, accused us essentially of wanting to kill people. Um, and then uh, when, when, uh, when a, a, a Canadian lawyer that we were in contact with complained, the ombudsman, the CDC, basically said, no, it was a fair report and didn't allow us to have any response. So the Canadian people were robbed of the opportunity to understand what exactly we were proposing. And just to, just to be clear, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just me. Uh, I teach at Stanford University, but also there was Martin Kuldorf of Harvard University and uh, an epidemiologist and fantastic biostatistician. Um, and then Sunetra Gupta of, of Oxford University. She's a, she's the, uh, the professor of, of theoretical epidemiology at, at, at Oxford. And tens of thousands of other scientists and doctors, including a Nobel Prize winner here at Stanford, signed on to this. This was a major scientific proposal put out by, uh, by, you know, credential scientists. It deserved a fair hearing, not a slandering. And the, and the Canadian people were robbed of that opportunity by the CBC, which essentially impaneled slander against it. Um, uh, the, the, you, you asked about censorship. You know, I think um, it's important for the Canadian people to know that this was a systematic effort, not just by the, the media, but by government actors. Um, there was a report in 2020, for instance, that the Canadian military used, uh, what, it used propaganda techniques to, uh, on the Canadian citizens to combat disobedience against lockdowns in 2020. Um, the... Uh, 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 the the uh, physicians or organizations which license physicians and oversee the conduct of physicians in, in Canada used its power to silence dissent by doctors. For instance, in Ontario, there's a doctor named Kulvinder Gill who posted uh, uh, on Twitter uh, messages essentially saying that lockdowns were a very bad idea, that focus protection was a good idea, entirely consistent with the science. And as a result, the, uh, the, the, the CPSO, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, has threatened her license. It was, it was a, a systematic campaign by Canadian government and quasi-governmental organizations to silence dissent so that Canadians got the impression that there was no alternative to lockdown. In fact, the scientific community um, had proposed a, 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 a very effective alternative to lockdowns that would have worked had, had it been adopted in Canada. Now, my understanding is, is that 
you're involved in a, a lawsuit in the United States. So the state of Louisiana and the state of Missouri and other parties are suing the Biden administration over censorship issues. And can you briefly share with us some of the things that you've discovered about censorship and this COVID experience? Yeah, so the United States has been, done no better than Canada on this, uh, in, in many ways worse. Um, the, uh, the the lawsuit that I'm involved with is a, is a federal lawsuit, um, and it's it's uh, it's uh, still advancing through the courts. But what we uh, what the what the judges allowed us to do is to depose a number of prominent individuals inside the Biden administration and uh, the Health and Human Services bureaucracy of the of, uh, of the United States, including Dr. Tony Fauci. We've also uh, had access through discovery to uh, a huge trove of email communications between a dozen federal government agencies in the United States and social media companies, um, uh, including Facebook, uh, Google, uh, Twitter, and so on. The, the, the content of these emails and these depositions reveal a, a, an enormous effort by the federal government to threaten social media companies um, uh, from a regulatory perspective if they didn't comply with censorship demands. Often these emails uh, have demands on, uh, on, on, on people to censor, posts to censor, ideas to censor, all, all in the name of combating disinformation. But the disinformation that they're combating is often true information, including information for about, for instance, about the efficacy of recovered immunity. Um, or the harms of lockdowns and so on. Um, th these uh, in in the in the United States, uh, this is a to me a very clear violation of the American First Amendment right to free speech. Um, and uh, even maybe even more importantly than that, it's violated a fundamental civil right. It robbed the American people. It robbed the world, frankly, of of access to um, to accurate scientific information. Uh, that had it been available, that uh, we might have adopted very, very different policies. It created this impression, this illusion that there was a scientific consensus around lockdown that didn't actually exist. Um, it was, uh, it's, it's one of these things where, if you'd asked me before the pandemic, could such a thing exist in the United States, I would have told you there's no possibility. The American First Amendment protects against it. But in fact, it's true. The, the, it's the uh, American government that acted to make sure social media discussions about the efficacy of lockdowns, the harms from from, from lockdowns, uh, immune, recovered immunity, the proper use of the vaccines, all of those discussions um, essentially were censored in favor of, 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 the, the, of the government's favored policies, whereas uh, uh, whereas like you know, prominent uh, credentialed individuals who d who dissented against those kinds of uh, that 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 government narrative um, were 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 silenced or censored or smeared or in in, in other ways. Um, it was it was it's an absolutely shocking kind of intrusion on the rights of of uh, of, of the people of the world to to, to have to have done this. And I hope that we can uh, when we win this lawsuit, this this whole censorship regime can be dismantled. And and I will indicate you've provided us with. Um... And I think people want to clap. Um, 
you provided us with a document called the Plaintiff's Proposed Findings of Fact in Support of Their Motion for a Preliminary Injunction. Mm -hmm. I'll advise the commissioners um, and those people watching that we've entered that as Exhibit W. I-8, and that is basically, uh, my understanding is, as the court has accepted the plaintiff's proposed findings of fact as true. Uh, so that we've had a, what, so far what we've had is a, uh, a, a motion dismissed by the government that's been rejected by the court in primary part. They haven't yet uh, addressed the preliminary injunction, so that that's still on, is still pending. But if you read the, um, the, the rejection of the government's motion to dismiss, it's a very favorable ruling in our favor, um, which seems it, on its face to accept many of those, uh, much of that document that I shared with you. Um, those, those documents are based on true facts, but those are based on actual emails we've had from, dis from discovery, um, and they're submitted under oath by, by the Missouri Attorney General, uh, Louisiana Attorney General's Office to the federal court. Okay, and before I turn you over to commission, Questions. I'll also um, just let you know that we're going to, we've entered as exhibit WI8A, the Great Barrington Declaration, and we've um, entered your expert report on COVID-19 response in Alberta, Canada, uh, dated January 20th, 21, as WI8C, and you did a supplementary report called Supplementary Expert Report on the COVID epidemic response in Alberta, Canada. We've entered that as WI83. And I'll just let the commissioners know, um, although I'm going to turn you over to their questions, um, you're also part of a group called the Norfolk Group, which has gone through tremendous effort to list questions that should be answered, um, flowing from the world's experience on COVID-19. Um, I forget, I mean, I think it's 80 pages long of questions. And we've entered that as WI. Um, 8E, and you've been you've participated in that initiative in helping to formulate those questions. I just wanted you to know that the, the, those will be before the commissioners for them to consider. And so I'll ask the commissioners if they have any questions at this time. And they do. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bhattacharya, for your very interesting uh, presentation. Uh, I have a few questions, some of which are probably simpler. Uh, th this whole notion that uh, that has been documented in Iceland and Sweden that the transmission from children to ad adult didn't seem to be that important. Is it something that is unique to this particular virus or is it something that was known before? My understanding was in the, with flu, I mean children can actually probably transmit it. So what, what's your take on that? So uh, I, I was surprised by the result. I did not expect it because the, the, the general uh, sort of idea was that uh, that children actually do spread respiratory viruses at a higher rates than um, than, uh, uh, than than the, than, the um, than than adults spread it. Uh, it's not that children can't spread this virus. It's just that they're not unique super spreaders. Um, I think a lot of the school closures and restrictions on the lives of children was premised on this false notion that. That, that they, like, like other respiratory viruses, uh, they're super spreaders for this one. Yeah, but it's not, it's just, it doesn't correspond with the actual reality as measured in the studies that came out in early 2020. Um, and so uh, we shouldn't have acted as if that were the case. Um, the restricting the lives of children was not a necessary precondition to protecting older people. Active focus protection measures were possible 
to protect older people without restricting the lives of children. And that's the, that's the key thing. Children were not, um, were, 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 were essentially demonized, made to be seen as, as, as grandma killers, and that was never the case relative to the scientific evidence. You've done a very interesting study early on to show that, in fact, the rate of uh, the virus was much more prevalent than we initially thought. So is it possible that because children typically exchange their germs, if you want, more readily than adults, is it possible that children uh, would have generated the recovered immunity faster than adults because of the way they exchange? Um, I mean, I think that's certainly possible. I think the key reason why children um, respond uh, much less uh, harshly to the infection by this is that children's immune systems essentially are, are pluripotent. They're, they're designed to respond to new threats because almost every threat when they're a very young child have is new. Um, and so they, they don't have the disease for as long. They're they, it's more likely to be asymptomatic. Um, and, and it's it's very likely that uh, that, uh, that 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 they have have it for a shorter time, and that's partly why they don't spread the spread the disease. You know, there's a really interesting study which I didn't mention, but I think I, I wrote in one of my reports about um, the, the mortality risk faced by parents of young children. If you match them against uh, uh, adults of similar age who don't who aren't exposed to young children all the time, they actually in 2020 have lower risk of dying from COVID. It's almost as if the, the parents are inoculated by the children um, uh, with other, maybe other coronaviruses. The mechanism is not clear, but the fact is clear that somehow children serve as a more of a protective role as opposed to a, a um, as opposed to a threat for, as far as infection from this virus goes. So one of the things that actually triggered the mandate for the vaccine was the hope, I would say, that it would prevent transmission. There was no data to support that initially, and I'm not aware of any data showing that uh, injecting a, a, a vaccine and the harm would actually prevent respiratory virus transmission. But then when the Delta wave became uh, pretty uh, intense in the states, we have this statement by the CDC that uh, the vaccine can no longer prevent transmission. So. Is it because the initial strain, for whatever reason, uh, was somewhat different and could actually be somewhat prevented by the vaccine, and the Delta was being more transmissible than even more so when we saw it with Omicron, that the protection was completely uh, overwhelmed by any, any possible way? So do you think that this idea that the transmission was something that was potentially real from the get-go, is something that was misleading best based on real-world data that we've got from epidemiology and made us believe at one point that maybe it was working? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's, a, it's almost impossible to answer that question with, uh, with any rigor because even almost uh, just as the vaccine was being released in December of 2020, the very first variant of concern was identified. Um, yeah, I think it was the alpha variant was what, the, what they called it eventually. Um, th that, that, um, uh, so the vaccine never was tested against transmission in, in, the, in the trials. That would have answered that question. Um, and so we don't know for certain 
if the vaccine would have prevented transmission for a very long time. We just know that it prevented symptomatic infection for two months. Um, what we do know is that the vaccine, when it was used in the real world, within two or th within just two or three months after vaccination, the efficacy against infection dropped very sharply, again, in, in high-quality epidemiological studies. Um, and so the reality from the moment we started using the vaccine was that it wasn't, given the variant that was actually you know, abroad in the world, it wasn't going to protect against transmission. We, we, you could see this very early on uh, in 2021. You know, heavily vaccinated countries and regions were experiencing big cases. Uh, I think the very first one I saw was in the Seychelles Islands, uh, I think it was March or April 2020. One, um, the, they had, they'd used the Chinese vaccine, they experienced the 90% vaccinated or very high percent vaccinated, and they had a huge outbreak of cases. There was another outbreak of cases in Gibraltar, again, heavily vaccinated, this, this time I think with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And of course, Israel in 2021, uh, uh, very quickly vaccinated a very large fraction of its population, and then experienced a very large outbreak of cases. Uh, the evidence was there from, uh, the, from within months of the vaccination campaign starting that the vaccine was not going to stop transmission, was not going to protect people from getting infected. In terms of protection against severe outcomes or death, I mean, it, we have indeed studies showing that it, it seemed, the vaccine seems to have done a reasonable job. But with the, I would say, less virulent, or <clears throat> we think it's less virulent, Omicron strain, do you think that we have generated or we can generate data to show that convincingly at this point? I think it would be very hard. I think a, a very large fraction of the population, the, Can the Canadian population, um, have been infected with Omicron. And as a result, you, most of the, the Canadian population, that, that mean all of them have been infected and recovered, have recovered immunity. And so with patients who have recovered immunity, the marginal benefit of the vaccine is going to be lower because the recovered immunity by itself provides uh, a protection against severe disease and death. Um, there is a literature that suggests something that there's something called hybrid immunity. So if you're vaccinated and you're, you have had recovered immunity, um, you COVID and recovered, you have a, sort of a different, um, a different kind of level of protection than someone who's just simply had recovered immunity or someone who simply had the vaccine. Uh, to me, these are like esoteric questions um, because the, the actual t uh, risk reduction from any of those is very, very high relative to an immune naive person. So uh, that's why we're in such a different place now in April of 2023 than we were in March of 2020. Such a large fraction of the population has recovered immunity. Um, such a large fraction of the population has had the vaccine. Um, we don't need to worry so much about COVID because of the durable protection against severe disease provided by, um, by, 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 those, two by those two facts. Um, that especially, I think, especially recovered immunity is, is, it seems to me, is probably more important. But you know, there are scientists that disagree. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, I have a couple of uh, questions, and and um, the first one is, you were talking about, um, I believe you said that uh, there's been some studies, some credible studies that uh, seem to indicate that the VAX does reduce mortality due to COVID. Um, and my question on that is, we've had a number, a significant number of witnesses prior to yourself come on and tell us that the, 
there were issues with the vaccine from inception to putting it in arms. And, you know, non-aspiration, uh, it was my understanding from the testimony that uh, manufacturers recommended not to mix different manufacturers, and that was done. Uh, there were issues with, uh, or at least alleged issues of quality control in the production. And I would like you to comment on, in these studies that indicated or seem to indicate that the vaccine reduced the potential for death, were those production vaccines given to those test subjects the same as they were done to the general population? Or were they not necessarily the same production vial that, uh, that uh, Joe Black got at the pharmacy in Winnipeg? Yeah, so I, I can't speak to Winnipeg in particular, but I can say that the that the that the studies are um, based on population records. There there are observational studies um, where they where they're tra where they're tracking at scale uh, regular people that that had got the vaccine. You know, like for instance in Qatar or in Sweden or in Denmark, wherever the, wherever the study or North, in Northern California, where the where some of these studies were conducted. So it wasn't that they were like special test subjects. They were actually just regular people getting the regular vaccine. I, I have seen, by the way, that that some of that literature and I, some of it is actually quite concerning. Uh, I'm not surprised in some sense. Like the the vaccine testing and the rollout was done at at a very rapid clip. Normally, something like this would have taken years and years and years to to uh, to, 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 to of testing. And 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 you, I, I can understand why. Like you have a a, a big threat to especially vulnerable older people. You wanna you wanna like rapidly uh, test and roll out a vaccine. That makes a lot of sense to me. And then it also makes sense that given the speed at which it's done, there are, there are mistakes made that are that 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 could, that, that, that can happen. And we learn things over time uh, about how to administer and so on. Uh, so none of that is surprising to me. The key question to me is like, given all of those mistakes, what effect did it have at the population level? Ideally, you would would have liked. I would have liked to see. A long-term randomized study done over, you know, not just where you track patients for two months, but for for a year or longer to see what the effects of the vaccines were, uh, including the side effect profiles. Um, that's not possible after 20, December of 2020 when they ceased those big large-scale trials. We don't have any more of those large-scale randomized trials. The best we have available are these. Epidemiological studies that I cite uh, in that in the Alberta report and and and, and, uh, um, and those 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 are the kinds of studies that I I, I work with the, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration on vaccine safety, for instance. Those are very similar to the kinds of studies that I I've, I've done and conducted, um, where the idea is to to carefully match patients who've had the vaccine with patients who haven't as best you can, given it's not randomized, um, and then track them over time using uh, passive. Uh, 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 pa passive data systems like electronic health records, um, like uh, like medical medical claims, and then uh, conduct this longitudinal analysis comparing the outcomes of patients who've had and had not had the vaccine. Um, that's that's essentially what those studies do. They're not perfect. They're not randomized. Uh, they're, they're unfortunately, the best we have. As a policy analyst. My understanding, as you being a policy analyst, not my, myself, me, by the way, but uh, as a policy analyst, my understanding of policy is when you examine issues or problems, you examine suggested um, solutions, and then you try to understand how those, how those solutions to that problem will affect the overall 
tapestry of our of our culture or our, or our world in this matter. I mean, you know, yeah. we we seem to impose things that tugged on every fiber of our society. We locked people down. We we isolated old people and 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 in old folks' homes. We we uh, uh, censored people. So we almost tugged on every single fabric of our society. And my question to you then is, as a policy analysis analyst, are you aware of any cost-benefit studies, detailed cost-benefit studies on these things that were done in Canada or the United States? No, none. And I think it was, I think it was a malpractice, public policy malpractice not to have done such a thing. Um, essentially what we decided, the Public Health acted as if all that mattered was COVID risk, and not just COVID risk, but like the spread of COVID and adopted policies, uh, tremendously destructive policies, like lockdowns, like school closures, without an eye toward any of the other so easily predictable social consequences and health consequences from those policies. Uh, a, a honest and responsible public health considers both the costs and benefits, the harms and uh, benefits from policies it recommends. It looks at public health holistically uh, it, holistically, not in some in, in in the sense that the World Health Organization only means it. Health is a very, very broad, multifaceted thing. It's not simply the prevention of a single infectious disease. Um, and so, when you adopt policies that are aimed at simply the protection against a single infectious disease, you're you're almost automatically going to harm other aspects of health. And that's exactly what's happened. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, as a professional myself. I understand the importance of explaining to my my client in terms that they can understand what exactly I'm talking about. You know, as a professional, yourself included, we can use all kinds of terminology that is normal to us that our clients can't understand. In this particular instance, and in, in from what I observed, this was probably the most significant time where folks needed to understand what was going on in order to give informed consent. And you spoke a little bit earlier about uh, efficacy and you talked about relative efficacy versus absolute efficacy and you said, well, you, you, that, that was a reasonable thing to you as a professional. But what, I, what I'm asking you is, do you think that the general public, when they were told that they had a 97% efficacy, understood the difference between absolute efficacy and relative efficacy? No, I don't. I, don't, I think that, that a lot of times people use that 95% number um, without actually telling people, it, it, as they should have, what the, what, the, what the caveats about that number, right? So for instance, I think the most important caveat is it did not measure 95% efficacy against severe disease and death. Yes. That was, that was it, it, it only measured efficacy for the first two months after the vaccination. Those caveats should have been told to the public at large. Uh, you use the words informed consent. I think there was a mass violation of informed consent um, in the way that the vaccines were, was rolled out. Uh, the, the, the force applied to people to take the vaccines through the mandates and the, the, the social discrimination and the passports and movement restrictions, all of that was a mass ethical violation at scale. You know, once again, as a professional, I'm trained to understand the difference between real risks, weigh them against potential risks, and then decide on what an action is. 
And I thought what I heard you saying in a number of instances was that there were potential risks. One of the previous um, witnesses talked about, and I, I apologize, I can't remember the name of the of the doctor who did the studies that said the whole world was going to die. And I'm, I'm exaggerating that point. but um, And then there were studies uh, by, by, by Pfizer that followed um, their test subjects for two months and then inject, in, injected all of the placebo groups. So there was no placebo group past two months. There were um, doctors coming on TV that were telling us that the vaccines prevented spread when there was no studies on that. So these, to me, those are all potential risks. The absolute risks were you locked a child up in their bedroom for, for two months and they couldn't go to school and what the consequences of that might be, or you took a dementia patient that we've heard testimony on in a number of instances where they just locked them up and abandoned them to die. And I, and I guess my question is, is it not standard practice in, in, in public health or, or, or in the practice of medicine to, to understand the difference between absolute and relative risk and weigh those two things together and come up with an appropriate solution given those two different types of risk? In, in the public health world that I grew up in, I thought that was absolutely bog standard, that you would, um, you would evaluate the evidence based on the quality of it, you'd, you'd prioritize high quality versus low quality evidence, you would um, you try to understand the implications, uh, the reasonable implications could be drawn from from evidence and not not uh, make inferences outside of what's what's reasonably inferable. Uh, if you'd had models, you you check the models against uh, reality to see if the models are actually doing well enough. Uh, you would you would think about a whole wide range of outcomes from a policy, not just simply the putative benefits of a policy, but also the potential harms of the policy before you adopt it. All of these, I thought, were absolutely bog standard in, in public health, and I think so many of those principles were thrown aside during the in the decision making around COVID and COVID policy. Mm -hmm. It's been disheartening for me to watch as a public health professional. You know, it almost seems that the fundamentals that we based our society on, at almost all levels, were ignored or trampled on. Here, you talked about censorship. You talked about public health. Basic science. I'm a I'm a scientist, and and in basic science, you know, you you observe something, you guess what you think it is, you do some testing, you develop a theory, and then you observe some more, and you take another guess. But science is a a loop that keeps going round and round and round and round. A basic fundamental of of everything in our technological life, and somehow, in this instance, we went around it. We seem to have went around in a single loop, and then it became dogma. Is that something that you've observed before in your scientific career? Never. Uh, it, and uh, so my, my colleague, Martin Kuldorf of, of Harvard University, who co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration, at one point, in, in, I think in late 2020, he, he, uh, he wrote uh, that, that, that this was the end of the Age of the Enlightenment. Uh, and you know, at first I thought he was hyperbo being hyperbolic, but you know what? He was right. Um, essentially, you had a scientific dogma a, a, a relatively small, narrow-minded group of individuals with tremendous power who, who dominated the, the scientific life of the world for, for, a, for a time um, and didn't brook any dissent. Uh, when we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, four days after we wrote it, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins in the United States, wrote an email to Tony Fauci 
calling me, Martin Kulldorff and Sunetra Gupta, fringe epidemiologists, and then calling for a devastating takedown of the premises of the declaration. Um, I was subject to death threats, uh, propaganda attacks, uh, sl slander. I mentioned already the CBC slander calling, uh, saying that I wanted to let the virus rip when in fact I wanted focus protection. It was a systematic attack on the very foundations of science that, that operate exactly the way you say. You know, you have hypotheses. Uh, I would just add one, one thing to the, your excellent description of how science works with logic and, 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 and hypothesis and experiment. It, it, it happens in conversation with others who disagree with you. In my experience, in my life, in my scientific life, I've learned a tremendous amount from people who disagree with me. Um, it's how science advances. And when the disagreement results in a, an experiment where one idea is proved right and one idea is wrong, that's exactly how science advances. If you don't brook disagreement in science, you're not doing science. Yeah, I mean, science is a combination of many minds, not one. It's a, that's the evolutionary process, if you will. You know, if you're a single monol monolithic solution to a large problem, everybody's at risk by whether it's correct or not. You know, you have multiple solutions and you have multiple opinions, you're protected. Thank you. You. <clears throat> are there any more questions from the commissioners? There are. Okay. When I think of the principle of content neutrality in defining the scope of Section 2B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as I recall, it's no matter how offensive or unpopular or disturbing um, a comment might be, it still needs protection. But here we're speaking about a bias against truth. Can you comment? I have to say, I, I, um, in 2020, uh, it seemed to me like the, 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 the basic protections um, for Free, free, uh, uh, free speech in the United States and Canada were essentially thrown away. Um, the United States, the First Amendment, seems to have, have made some comeback here, and I still have some hope that our lawsuit will succeed. I, I'm very worried about Canada. The, the, my experience in the Canadian lawsuits that I've been involved with, one in Alberta, one in Manitoba against the lockdowns, um, and then another in, in Montreal, uh, I have seen very little inclination from the Canadian courts to protect those basic charter rights. Um, and you're absolutely right. This is and this was this is more even more fundamental than somebody just you know saying bad words on the on the on the internet or, or something. Um, the, although I think those are free speech rights that ought to be protected. Um, what you have here is a fundamental suppression of scientific discussion. And it was a suppression both directly with direct censorship efforts, but also by smearing and demonizing people who disagreed with the narrative, credentialed people, doctors, scientists, who, who, uh, where the idea was to, in the, in the minds of, of Canadians just watching CBC, to, to, for them to think that, okay, these are the bad guys, the, the public health authorities uh, who are making all these lockdown decisions are the good guys, and you should, you should just ignore them because they're fringe, they're outsiders, they're not... They're not uh, they're, they're somehow underqualified. Although, I mean, the key thing to me is like that, that, that kind of idea is dangerous, not just from the, the perspective of, of the, you know, uh, from a legal perspective where you violate fundamental civil rights of, of, of peoples, uh, which, it, which it absolutely is, but also from a, from a public health perspective. When public health authorities make mistakes, you have to permit dissent. You have to allow that kind of correction to happen. And if it's gonna happen from the outside, that, where else would it happen if you, do, if you have a monolithic public health authority that's speaking in one voice? Um, 
You can't simultaneously allow that public health authority then to control the, the organs of the media and allow it to demonize uh, opponents without, not with logic, but with essentially by, by, by drowning out or by uh, deplatforming. Uh, that's unfortunately what happened, and I think it harmed the health of Canadians. Thank you. Dr. Bhattacharya, it appears that the commissioners are finished with their questions, and I'd like to just, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, sincerely thank you for taking the, the time to share with us. Your testimony is greatly appreciated as we um, jointly just try to find out what happened and, and figure out how to proceed and, and heal as a nation. So thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you so much. I'm really grateful to you.